Well, good morning, church family. My name is Billy, and I'm privileged to be one of the shepherds here at Fullerton Free in partnership with many other of your leaders and shepherds. I'm honored to be teaching you today and humbled at the responsibility of the passage um, this particular message brings today. Um, It's a timely one. It's one that's kind of a little bit heavy, as we'll see, but one that's, I think, really important for us. And so I pray that God would use it in you and in me and in our church. We are in a, a series called Saints Together, and this is a series that's going through the book of 1 Corinthians, dealing with the issues in that particular church of Corinth, where Paul, their leader, is trying to unify them. They've got a lot of issues going on, divisions and challenges, and he's trying to get them all on the same page. And so, appropriately, this series is called Saints Together. We, at this church, have the same goal of unity in our body. We're striving to be a healthy and unified church family together. I love that today is Family Sunday. I I love these days when we sit shoulder to shoulder generationally. We've got students, kids, and babies, and and, uh, grandmas and grandpas. Um, I love the fact that we did child dedications today. Um, My son, Brayden, was dedicated here about 20 years ago. And I just remember back to that time, watching him grow and knowing the impact of what it means to be like spiritual parents, spiritual aunts and uncles, or family to one to another. So we celebrate that today, and we're gathered here together today as family, but it causes us a time to, to take a moment to kind of do some assessment and ask the question, how are we doing as a family? It's like we're sitting at the dinner table together and, and having a family meeting. What, how are we doing in terms of our togetherness? And this, uh, this series just came after another series we did called Who We Are. Talked about our mission, our vision, our values as a church, our core tenets and the things that we're about. And we use that sort of present tense language to claim who we are, knowing that there's an active sense that we're becoming the things that we're claiming. Much like these kids growing up, they're growing into the things that they are. And so we together are striving to those things. This passage today, while not directed exactly at us, causes us to ask the question, how are we doing as a church? Would you turn in your Bibles, your journals, your iPhones, whatever you have, to 1 Corinthians 4. And let me just mention some immediate context. If you remember back from last week, if you had joined us, Darren uh, gave us a message on chapter 3 that um, Paul was talking uh, in the midst of four chapters of addressing a painful issue, a big problem taking place in the church. If you remember, uh, there, there was architectural, an architectural metaphor that was being used to speak of the church as God's family. This beautiful picture of this building that was being built. First uh, Peter chapter 2 verse 5 talks about us, the church, being like living stones being built into uh, God's building. And yet, as we saw from last week, there were things that were breaking down in the building of the church of Corinth. There was something amiss. Darren mentioned this possibility that there was sabotage taking place. There was uh, breaking down. And the problem was this, the Corinthians, some of them, not all of them, but some of them were choosing sides among their leaders. They were intentionally dividing the church. They were elevating some and therefore downgrading others, and they didn't seem to mind. It didn't bother them that doing so might actually be wrecking their own building, weakening their own body. Presumably they knew that it was, and they didn't even seem to care. And this was happening because, we'll see some things here in our passage today, but their overconfidence and self-absorption and the fact that they thought they had arrived. And Paul, specifically, was their direct target. They were disrespecting Paul and his leadership in particular, and he was feeling the burden of it all. I want us to just pause for a minute and, and set the scene kind of imagine ourselves with what Paul, as he took pen to write this letter, must have been feeling. 
Obviously, he's mistreated. He's troubled by their church. But can you imagine this scene? Here's Paul's life. Paul used to persecute Christians. He was a murderer. He, he was someone who was, who was wrecking the church. But he comes to have this life-changing encounter with the Messiah and decides to dedicate his life to the spread of the good news. So he commits to traveling and he goes around to different churches, faithfully telling people about Jesus and starting churches. He's inviting believers into community and encouraging them. He's doing life with them to nurture them. And he comes, when he goes to another town, leaving the church of Corinth, to do that with another group of people, he hears some reports coming back to him that suggest that those that he was doing life with, those that he was pouring his life into, were turning on him. They were disrespecting him. This pain, I think of this painful breaking apart of the body. Uh, it's Halloween tomorrow, right? And, and as, uh, as I've been walking our dog around the neighborhood, seeing all the houses get set up in the midst of happy jack-o'-lanterns and nice scarecrows and hay bales are, are all, is always the creepy houses, right? The ones with the crazy lights. And they're the ones that, you know, they have haunted houses and full candy bars. And, but they always have these, like, plastic feet, that are bloodied, ripped off, right? Or these hands that are dug into the grass. Can you picture them? Or bones strewn around their yard, right? I think of this, this, uh, this craziness of this sort of dismembered body. And it sounds kind of silly in terms of Halloween, but think about it in reality. How gross, how gruesome is that? Body being ripped apart. I think about it in terms of families that are ripped apart through divorce. I'm a product of that in, in, in my own life, and that's, it's been a challenge. Um, bitter division. And Paul aims to address all of this division. He offers a solution. He's basically calling them out on it. He's aiming to course correct them, asking them to fix the problem. And he does this by trying to reset their view of the role and responsibility of their church leaders, himself included, but also inclusive of Apollos and Cephas and others. Their view, he's resetting their view of the roles and responsibilities of church leaders. And in turn, he appeals for them to realign their thinking and respond in kind to the relationship which they would have with their leaders for the sake of the unity and health of their body. And so while removed 2,000 years or so from the church at Corinth, I think it's fair for us naturally to ask the question today, how does this translate to our modern church context here in Fullerton? Today, my goal is for us to consider the unity and health of our church and there's this important relationship that takes place between the church congregation, you as members of the church, and, and those of us that are in leadership. That responsibility goes both ways. There's something to be said in this passage, as we'll see, as we define good leadership. But ultimately, it's how that leadership is received and responded to by the church that will matter. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how this passage will hit you. I don't know what you're thinking about this church or how much history you have. Um, any challenges in particular you may or may not have with our leadership. I don't know what that is, but uh, I'm going to ask that you would be open to the work of the Holy Spirit to allow yourself to ask some questions along the way. I'm going to ask some possibilities of how this passage would sit with you and our church. And granted, this is a letter that's being written. Um, it's not a, a sermon meant for a three-point outline, but uh, I think the section breaks down nicely for us to have three points here. And the first one is this. In order for a healthy, unified church, um, in, in order for us to have a healthy and unified church, it needs to be built on an accurate expectation of 
leaders and a healthy relationship to those leaders. Our first part in verses 1 through 5, I've labeled the focus of church leaders. There was a deficiency in the Corinthians' view of their leaders and of themselves, therefore, I think. Paul seeks to realign that. He picks it right up there in verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us. And I'm going to stop us there already in verse 1 because this first sentence is a summary of the chapter. This is the main point. This is the main point of what I'm saying today. How ought we, the church, regard our church leaders? The message by Eugene Peterson phrases it this way. He says, don't imagine us leaders to be something that we aren't. Why? Well, because the Corinthians were. They had imagined uh, something different in their leaders. And Paul's course correcting their view. He says, don't see leaders that way. You've got a skewed view. Um, the, the church in Corinth was being heavily influ- influenced by their Greek culture, in particular a group of people known as the sophists. These were the wise ones. These were the sages and the experts. They would meet in the marketplace and they would expound great philosophy and wisdom. And they, they were impressive. They were influential. They were successful. In some ways, they were kind of like rock stars and celebrities. And the Corinthians were imposing that sort of value on the church. And really, in turn, suggesting that their leaders ought to be like that and, and, and be valued for those types of things. Even the things that they particularly had preferred. They were trapped by secondary or even unimportant things. And Paul is saying, that's not how that leaders should be viewed. That's not how I should be viewed or any of us apostles and leaders. There's nothing wrong with people who have skills, who are good at certain things. Paul, Paul was, Apollos was, all of them were. Generally, all pastors should have something to offer. But he says this, don't get caught up in the things that are not primary. I want to ask us a question here, Fullerton Free. How, is it possible... Is it possible that we've lost focus on what our leaders are to be about? You see, we live in a world that's enamored by the cult of celebrity, by important people, aren't we? Our news feeds, our social media accounts are filled with influencers and celebrities, and it kind of tends to creep into the church, even to the elevation of certain types of pastors. Granted, I, I think pastoring is an important role to play, but it was never intended to be lifted up onto a pedestal. Certainly pastors want to be influential, but not to that kind of level. There's potentially uh, uh, lost focus on the things that are secondary, about the qualifications of leaders. Things like eloquent speech or creativity or being funny or deep and insightful. Some, and that's just teaching. Sometimes we think of, of leaders and we, we evaluate them on their experience level or their leadership skills or their education Sometimes we get trapped up in the measures of church success based on external results. And make no mistake, the, the leaders of this church are accountable to some things. Our elder board um, holds Darren, our lead pastor, who is responsible for our staff team, holds us accountable to agreed upon goals as a church. But we can tend to make more of secondary standards for things like the attendance numbers at our church, or how much money we have in our budget, or or conversions, or baptisms, or membership, or programs, and all of these kinds of things, Paul's saying, no, we, not, we ought not to be focused on secondary things. It's hard to track the effectiveness of spiritual maturity, and so we shouldn't look to things like that. Is it possible we've, si- we've lost sight of what our leaders should be about? We ask them to be something more. 
that God is not calling us to be. Paul says, this is how one should regard us then, the correct view, these things that matter, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required that that stewards be found faithful. He says, these are the things that matter. Here's the real job description for pastors and shepherds. He says, we are called to be servants of Christ. And I think of this language and my first reaction is, well, servants, right? Duh, that's what we do. Of course, that's the case. But thinking about the society flipping the narrative and the, the influential ones, the super impressive ones of the day, it makes sense that Paul's trying to correct them and saying, don't, don't, don't make your leaders about that. I expect them to be like servants. This word that's used here, another metaphor change that Paul does, he goes to a nautical metaphor. Their city was surrounded by water, so there was a lot of trade through boating. And, and this word that he uses, a, a, a word that's translated as under rowers, the workers on the bottom and the galleys of boats, right, deep in the belly of these boats that are just rowing and rowing, listening to the voice and the command of the captain, rowing and rowing, doing the work of someone else. That's how leaders are to be viewed. Servants of Christ. It's a humble position. Leaders, ironically, um, aren't the, the main leader. Leaders are led by the voice of the master. And I want to say this gently here too, but uh, we, we as leaders are to be servants of Christ. And in doing so, we are aiming to serve the body and therefore serve Christ. But our aim is not to serve each one of us individually. The church, you see, is not the focus of leaders. Sometimes I think we can tend to make the church about us. We feel like we're the ones that are to be served, that leaders are to meet our expectations and our preferences. We've got it kind of twisted. Leaders are to serve Jesus. He is the one whose voice we are to listen to. There's a second thing that Paul is calling leaders to be in his job description. He says, or to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Steward is, a, is another metaphor change. It's kind of a, a domestic word for a house manager. Someone that's been entrusted by the owner with the keys to the house. Who knows how the family runs. Given money to do errands and chores and knows how the family works. The emphasis here is on their trusted position and accountability to the owner. And they don't need to be checked on. They're faithful to get the job done. And what is the job that they're doing? They're stewarding. They're, they're guiding the mysteries of God. The secret things of God, going back to chapter 2, as Steve Aaron taught us, the deeper and hidden things which are brought to life, the mysteries of the Old Testament that are now becoming realized in the Messiah that's come. It's the gospel message, the big story of Jesus unfolding through the Old Testament into this new reality. And so we, leaders and pastors, are called to steward these mysteries. It means we are entrusted to these, these uh, secret things and deeper things, and it's a, it's a big responsibility big responsibility. It's, it's weighty. We're to guide those things. We don't own them. We didn't author these truths. And so we do so with open hands. We're the ones that are asked to keep these mysteries in focus. We're the ones to shed light on them the best way that we can. We don't have this all figured out. I can't look at my Bible here and be able to explain everything necessarily or in a way that is exactly knowing exactly how God meant it to be. We do our best to accurately handle the word of truth. It also means as stewards, I don't think that we think that we've cornered the market on truth or locked it down or made more of the things that we feel so convinced of, think related to 
uh, the scriptures. I'm not convinced that we ever really solve this mystery. We remain in this pursuit of, of handling the word of truth well and guiding it and ushering it to our congregations so that God would blow our minds and open our eyes to things that we've never seen about him. So we take great care to do that. It requires faithfulness, as he says there, loyalty to him and his message, not to the other trappings of other things. And then he says there in verse 3, he says, who gets to decide how effective uh, these leaders are being? Who's the judge? And Paul says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. See, I think Paul is focusing here on this fact that as leaders, we're not to, to take too much stock in the things that people are saying about us, judging us, anyone, even ourselves. We're not swayed by the evaluations of others, opinions of others, not worried about how others would perceive, not proud of our own evaluations, not thinking we have it all together, not overconfident, not underconfident, judged by God alone and held accountable to him. I want to just make a statement really quick about evaluation versus judgment. I think it's good to be able to evaluate. I think it's good to look around and call things objectively for what they are. But judgment takes kind of a subjective approach. And behind that is opinion and preference and sometimes superiority and finality that oftentimes displays a sense of overconfidence and arrogance. There's a difference between that. And I think it's okay for us to ask questions. I think Paul is saying, you don't need to be judging and leaders need to be listening to the voice of the judge, God alone. Church family, is it possible that our evaluations, this church of our leadership have turned into judgments and those judgments turn into burdens on leaders and cause potentially division in our church? Paul is focusing their thinking. And the point is this, the focus of good leaders, of healthy and effective leaders who focus on the main thing and that's Christ and him crucified Faithful service to Jesus, faithful commitment to stewarding the mysteries and a clear understanding of whose opinion matters the most. Make no mistake, I'm talking on the behalf of our church leadership. That's a humbling position. But we, the leaders of this church, are not perfect in these things. We cannot claim to be. This is our striving. This is what we're becoming. But I represent many leaders at this church who I know are striving to these things. And I'm I'm grateful to be a part of a group of men and women who give their lives to this place. I believe that we're aiming at the right things, keeping the main thing the main thing. And our prayer is that this bodes well for the unity of our church as you see that in us. And even still, our, our unity relies in part on how you might see that and how you might respond. Let's turn to our second thing, verses 6 through 13, our second point this morning, the example of church leaders. Paul is noticing the way that the Corinthians were living, and he models a different way, a different attitude how to live. This, admittedly, is a really tough section. It's tough in language. It's tough in its tone. It's tough in Paul's reality. He, as we'll see, is displaying emotion, great emotion, and he's using really difficult language, expressing his frustration to his church, his concern over his church and how they've been thinking. He says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. 
For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Can you hear it in his voice? Or my voice, I guess? This emotion is pouring out of Paul. When I first read this passage, the first notes that I started making, I thought, what a jerk. Like, who is this guy? Like, he's calling out his church. Is is there a sense of arrogance in him? What What is going on with this guy? He's really, really off his rocker here. And the more that I sat with this passage, the more that I sit in the reality of church leadership on our end, I think simply that Paul is feeling overwhelmed exasperated, burdened by his care for his church. He's just a human. He's just a guy, and he's serious in his care for them and their misguidedness. He says, I'm doing these things for your benefit, for your learning. His goal wasn't to hammer them. It was to help them. And so he's, he's warning them, and he's encouraging them unto their learning and their growth and their change. He says, don't go beyond what's written. Again, I think that's the basics of the main thing. He's talking about the things he's just written in the previous three chapters. Again, the the main thing being the, the importance of the crucifixion and the cross. The importance of the way of Jesus, not any other way. He's reminding, don't go beyond those things. Don't be puffed up to think it's about something else. He goes after their arrogance and their pride, this bitter root that is contributing to the division that's taking place. And he's calling them out. What are you guys doing? Who do you think you are? He says, all that's from God. All that you have is from God. So why would you boast? He says, you've become kings. And he's doing so there, not in a sense of truth. That's not a a true statement. That's sarcasm that he's using. They weren't kings. He's talking about essentially how they, in in seeing the new Messiah would come in this eschatological sense, this, this new era that was being ushered, that they had arrived that they were living in royalty under this king. And Paul wishes it were true, but it wasn't. They were living a theology of glory based on the values of their culture of wisdom and power and honor and riches and success. He says, you think you've, you're like kings. You think you've arrived. I can't help but translate this to a sense that I get in our American Christianity. Of this sense of triumphalism and victory and superiority, this, this striving to what's comfortable and what's easy and, and what's impressive, somehow strangely equating to this closeness with God as if it were more spiritual or more blessed. How foolish is that, Paul says. Church family, is it possible that we have a skewed view of how to live, that we've become puffed up, that we act like we've arrived and figured Got everything all figured out? Are we overly or unnecessarily critical and judgmental? Not trusting God for his plan for our church by thinking we know better how to run the church? Pick it up there again, verse 9. For I think that God, it gets worse here. I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You were held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. 
When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and refuse of all things. Wow. Even more, we see Paul's heart, Paul's pain, Paul's weight. He's contrasting there. Uh, them thinking like their kings to these gladiators being brought into the uh, arena after a battle, ironically to bow before a king and then to be executed. Paul is essentially saying, this is what my life feels like. He's pulling back the curtain to his own life, feeling condemned to die. No glory. This theology of glory has turned to the theology of the cross in comparison. Remember back to chapter one, Christ crucified is what matters. This king... A king that they held to worldly standards was a different type of king. And he valued humility and sacrifice and suffering. It was an uncomfortable life. The Corinthians had a painful disconnect about the church and its leaders. Fools versus wise, weak versus strong, honor and disgrace. I think Paul's essentially saying, we don't have this all figured out. We have not arrived. We still rely on Christ. And his reality of being poor and homeless and reviled and calling himself scum. And yet trying to bless, trying to endure, trying to continue the work. It's a cost of following Christ. This, this call to leadership through the eyes of Paul is a pretty tall order. And the point here in this section, I think, is this. The example of church leaders ought to be those who live lives in view of the humility of Christ. Paul's completely exhausted, been working hard, pain, brought really low. Makes me think, is, is, is he just having a pity party for himself? Maybe he's looking for some respect. Maybe he's just complaining. I mean, after all, he's just human. I think he's saying, come on, church. What are you doing? Get it together. Church family, is it possible that the work of ministry is hard and that human leaders feel the weight of it? Is it possible that we, as a church, may be contributing to those burdens? Well, at the risk of throwing a, a pity party on behalf of our leaders at this church, or at the risk of, of making too much of my life a role in leadership, I would say, yeah, yeah, ministry's hard. It's weighty. And I don't want to be perceived as complaining. I'm happily employed here. I'm blessed to serve here. But pulling back the curtain... I'll say this on behalf of many others. Ministry is tough. In my 14 years at this church, I've seen a lot. I've been through a lot. Lots of blessing. A lot of great things that God has been doing, but lots of challenges. I've seen many, many ups and downs, especially over the last nine years. And these last two to three years have been really tough. Not just on leaders in this church, but leaders, church leaders everywhere. The pandemic and politics and division and opinions and reduction and all of these things have been really weighty. All of it, tough stuff, I'm not going to lie. We continue to carry the weight of it. And there's an awkwardness on my part in this place in the conversation. I feel really humbled because I, I know that I don't have this all figured out. And unlike Paul, I, I don't live in such squalor. Not feeling the weight of all these things in that way, in a sense, I've got it. I've got it really good, and I don't, I don't bear burdens alone. Again, I share, I share a role of leadership with many in this church, and I know and I share the prayers and hopes and burdens and joys 
with lots of people on behalf of this place. We're not perfect, but I can attest our striving for our leadership. We want to live lives of humility and sacrifice and service. We want to lead the way, the way that Jesus led. And all with a certain heart, which brings us to our final section, verses 14 through 21, and that's the heart of a church leader. Paul's finally driving home his message with laying out his heart. Paul approaches his role as a leader as more than just a job, more than just tasks of communicating the message of the gospel or or ministry. He sees himself as a spiritual parent. How appropriate for this morning. Parenting is certainly something I can relate to. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is kind of turning a corner here in terms of the heaviness of the sarcasm and irony and scoffing and difficult circumstances to a critical piece of what I think leadership needs. And that's heart. He's fired up, but he's showing tenderness here at the core of of these arguments. He says, I didn't come to shame you. His love for them is too great to want to put them to shame. He says, I'm, I'm here to warn you. I'm here to help you put them back on track. He's desiring a right relationship with them. He calls them beloved children. This relational context, I think, is beautiful. We've talked about spiritual parenting, um, spiritual fathers. I love these child dedications. I, I think it's a great expression of what it's like to live in family together. There's, there's familiarity in family, right? Don't let the tone that Paul has been using in this chapter take away from his heart behind it. The language that he uses, I think, is, like, is not unlike what you might hear at my dinner table, right? It's like it's family. You can, you can say things to each other that feel strong because of, of being family. That's what Paul's doing. He talks about having different types of guides versus types of uh, being a, a father. Is there nothing wrong with various types of other people in your life playing different roles? But there's something more intimate and meaningful and intentional as he calls himself a father. Uh, this, this language, by the way, about fathers, of course, Paul is a male, so he's going to call himself a father. But interestingly, Paul in First Thessalonians talks about kind of a, his church and, and parenting his church with both motherly and fatherly language. And I think this wholeness of being and having spiritual mothers and fathers is, is really what we're talking about here. And let me say, first of all, uh, as well, that I know that when we talk about language of parenting, sometimes that doesn't resonate with some of us. Some of us didn't have great mothers or fathers. Um, my, in my story, I didn't, I didn't have a great father. I had a great mother. And so I have this sense, uh, even from uh, other people in my life, of what a healthy family might look like with good parents and children who were led well by them. He's talking about being, uh, he, he's encouraging them to imitate him even. He's, he wants them to follow Christ as he's following Christ. And he sets Timothy up as an example. And he says, that guy's got it. He's, he's one that's figuring it out. He gets it. And I'm sending him to you as someone who's following Christ as well. Many of us here are like Timothy's in that sense. Those who get it. Paul is talking about his consistent message. He's saying, I teach all these things to every church that I'm in. And as much as I say it, I live it out. Not just about talk, but about power. He's saying, I'm willing to discipline, but I come at it with love and tenderness And the point here, the main point is this, the heart of a church leader should be that of love like a parent. 
Good parents will love with honesty, with a willingness to warn or correct, with the ability to set an example, to do what they say, to be consistent, to admit their weaknesses, to be willing to discipline when necessary, but through all of it, with a sense of love, of tenderness and gentleness. Shout out to my three great kids sitting over here. Love you all. Uh, just ask any of them, and I'm sure they will tell you that I am, I am not a perfect parent by any stretch. Uh, they should tell you that because it's true. I'm certainly not. But all I can really say about that is I love my kids deeply. So deeply that even in the midst of my own humanness, I revert back to how much they mean to me when I get things wrong and what my commitment is to them, to guide them, to support them, to celebrate them, to refine them, to put my life on the line for them, set an example for them, to love them, for the betterment of who they are and who we are as a family. Well, so what? What do we do with all of this? Verse 21 gives an interesting phrase that that I'd like to kind of end on here. It starts the first part of 21. He says, what do you wish? Paul is talking there in that phrase. He's he's saying, I'm going to come back and see you. Remember, he he had left. He wrote a letter to them, and he was going to come back. But they didn't think that he was coming back. Their arrogance said, oh, you won't make it back. We don't believe you. He says, I'm going to come back. And in fact, he does come back. He makes good on his promise. But he's giving them this, this opportunity to say, when I come back, what's it going to be like? I mean, will you be ready? Will you know? Like, will you, be, will you be prepared in our relationship with one another to receive my discipline? Because that's what I'm willing to do. Or do you choose my tenderness? Because I'm certainly ready to do that too. What do you choose? You know, we get to choose our posture in light of our leaders. You don't get to choose your leaders. But we, we get to choose how we respond to them. And this focus on leaders this morning, leaders and leadership, has everything to do, I think, with our health and our unity here at the church of Fullerton. This message, while a good reminder to us as leaders, and believe me, I reminded myself well of it, and I'll continue to remind the team of, of leaders that I work uh, alongside. But this message, I believe, through Paul's words, is really meant for you, the church. Paul wasn't instructing himself necessarily, or Paul, or, or Apollos or Peter. He was simply com- communicating what their striving and intentions were, his care for them. His angle was to take the reins and give the church a better chance in the days ahead as they, in turn, course corrected their view. The focus here is for the church. Our church needs to be reminded and to better understand the importance of leadership and what what's at stake in terms of, of what's expected of us and what we're, what we're all about. We're striving to be a healthy church. We're growing. We're, we're in progress. We don't always get it right, but we're committed to the pro- process. And, and, and on, on the part of the leaders, and in behalf of all leaders in this church, leaders, take note. Let's lead well. Let's lead with this kind of focus on Christ. Let's lead with humility. Let's, let's have the heart of, of parents recalibrate ourselves to that, live it out, and to stay the course. But church, what's your part in this? Are you open to the Holy Spirit and what's being spoken to you? What's, what's your relationship with our church leaders like? Is it one of criticism and judgment? Is it one of respect and trust? How can we work 
towards greater health and unity. Maybe you don't feel like you know some of the leaders of this church. I mean, we're not a small church, and so it can be difficult to get to know everyone. Some of you are pretty new. Sometimes you might feel like you don't have a connection with one of us. We encourage you to reach out to any one of us. We're standing up here every Sunday waiting to to be with you and to pray with you. We would love it. It's our desire to be in relationship. You have a role to play in that. There's some possibilities ahead for us. And I'm going to ask some questions or phrase it in this way, I guess. How might you respond in some meaningful way? It might be in your love and commitment to this church. This morning, it might be your desire to get to know leaders or take initiative. It might be your appreciation for leaders and shepherds. There might be a conviction for you for an attitude of arrogance or a conviction for something that you've said or done in a spirit of divisiveness. It might be a check in your spirit about your evaluation and all that goes into and all that goes on here as it, as it relates um, potentially to, to judgment. It might mean a new dedication in your heart to pray for the leaders of our church. We need it. It might mean a renewed sense of involvement in the body or of generosity or of service to one another. You see, church family, this, this church isn't built on leaders. This is not Darren's church. It's not any of, our, of the other pastors that brought this church along our history of 67 years or so. Never was about the leaders. This church also isn't built on you. Let's all be reminded that this is Jesus' church. We are his building. We are materials that he's using to build this thing and construct a beautiful picture to the world of who he is so that Jesus would be revealed through this place. I pray that you sense my heart for you and for our church in this message. I continue to labor with a great group of men and, men and women who lead our church. I've sat with them. I've seen and heard their heart. Our elders, our senior leadership team, our group leaders, volunteer leaders. And this is us. We are the leaders of this church. God is calling us, a great group of men and women who I believe are aiming at these very targets. We're called by God for such a time as this to lead this church in this season. So on behalf of our leaders, we want you to know how deeply we love you. How much we care about this place now and in the days ahead. What we want to be setting up for those children who in 20 years might be back to this place, hoping to consider this place their home. We want you to know how seriously we take our roles and how committed we are to making much of Jesus. So back to the beginning, who are we? What are we becoming together? What are we striving for? What are we building? May it be that Fullerton Free Church is building a unified church focused on Jesus, not on ourselves, For the glory of God and good of others, may we, the body of Christ, accurately put him on display and that he build his church through us. Let's pray together. God, this is your church. We are reminded this morning that it's you who started it. It's you who's the foundation of it. It's you who leads this place and sustains it and empowers it. It's you who blesses it, and it's you who ultimately receives the glory from it alone. God, we are your servants. As we strive to be the church that you want us to be, we know that we've not fully arrived. 
We know that we are in process, but we boldly claim these things that we are and are becoming a selfless, gracious, focused, and unified church. Help us to be mindful of our place in this church body. God, let us be about humility and grace with one another. Let us check ourselves for any spirit of criticism or judgment or taking sides or second guessing. Oh, Father, forgive us for where we've erred and allow ourselves to make this place about something that, that you didn't intend for. Forgive us for that. God, would you heal us? Would you guide us? Would you unify us? God, may you bless this church with your favor in the days ahead to accomplish all that you want in our lives and in the lives of those within our influence and connection. To you be the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.